It is often useful to read what others have to say sermon-wise when you have a text. Sometimes even cartoons can be interesting. That came courtesy of the Dean of Chapel. That's not mine. There were people, though, who did whole sermons on how these are two alike or two different people. It can prime the pump looking at what others say, but for today's gospel lesson, as you can maybe imagine, things are pretty predictable. Many were just plain preachy, scolding the haves for not paying attention to the have-nots, some arguing even for the preferential option for the poor, using those words. Predictable, not terribly evangelical. Now, while some may consider it easier for a camel to navigate through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, there is nothing wrong with riches per se. There are examples in the Bible, and we see them in the early church described there also, uh, where people manage quite, quite finely. And while you can't take it with you, to steal a title of a comedy play that's going on now at the Rep, Kaufman and Hart, while you can't take it with you, the problem in Luke 16 runs a little deeper than that, and it's no laughing matter. The lack of compassion has roots really in a lack of faith. That's why the rich man ended up where he did. We all have a God, we are reminded in the large catechism. It's where we hang our hearts, and the rich man hung his on himself. He had assets in abundance, but he did nothing with them because there was no faith, no good tree to bring good fruit, and that was the problem. At the same time, suffering is no guarantee of entrance into the kingdom. Again, others elsewhere suffered, but with no such reward. So don't think Lazarus wound up where he did simply because God owed him something for having shorted him in this life. Yet God certainly did something for him. In all the stories and parables that Jesus tells, this is the one time where a character is singled out by name. Lazarus, we say in English, using the Latin really, with roots back in the Hebrew name, Eliezer. God helps, God has helped. And indeed, God has helped plenty. Giving this man, who had nothing in this life, the faith to hold to God's faithfulness, to trust in God's trustworthiness, to cling to God's promise and to stand with the, that God would stand with those even when it seems all else is against them, despite what may come. Lazarus hardly looked the part, but God loved him and he made him rich beyond measure in another way. His name is really the answer. The rich man had no faith, no heart, and thus he did nothing with what he had. Though moth consumes and rust corrupts, this fellow piled up riches just like another rich man, four chapters earlier in Luke, who fared no better, having built barns and then suddenly lost his life eternally for losing his focus here and now, for clutching at everything but the one thing needful. Meanwhile, Lazarus seemingly has nothing to give others. If he had faith, where is the fruit? It's a good question. Martin Luther suggests that Lazarus gave the only thing he had. He gave himself. He was an example of waiting on God no matter what, waiting on God who promises never to leave his own. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints, and Lazarus was indeed. 
When it comes to the rich man and Lazarus, their value depends not on what they have, but on who they are, particularly as God sees them. Worth rests in relationship. Looking up from his torment, the rich man still thought of himself first, but with no good in mind, self-serving again. And then he thought of his brothers. Were they rich? We don't know. But they apparently were just as misguided as was he, given the drastic measure that the man pleads for. Was his request for Lazarus' return a sudden blip of compassion? The text doesn't say so, but I can't help but wonder if maybe he didn't want his brother's company one day and then have to listen eternally to their complaining that he'd done nothing in their behalf to save them. But his solution wasn't an answer, and it still showed a lack of faith and a focus. For God had already helped. No need for Lazarus with Moses and the prophets already on record. The story of human failure since Genesis, but more the story of God's faithfulness and of his grace again since Genesis was there all along, repeated over and over. Everything the brothers needed, anyone needs, that was there in plain view. Failing to see reality, to grasp the obvious, should have been as difficult as missing the forest for the trees, or like falling out of a boat and somehow not hitting water. Words spoken and read and printed on the page, though, seem so mundane and ordinary, and yet they are better than someone come back from the dead. Think about that. That's remarkable. Words tied to things so mundane as water and bread and wine are more powerful than someone come back from the dead. Meanwhile, Lazarus sits firmly in the bosom of Abraham. Luther wondered how we should make sense of that, uh, that phrase, since it doesn't make uh, much sense to think of it physically. Instead, Luther suggests we think of Abraham as the father of that line that leads to the most important promise, the promise of Christ, which is not to allegorize, but rather to emphasize the cornerstone of a relationship that puts Lazarus there in God's kingdom. In effect, says Luther, Lazarus really rests in Christ. And so Lazarus, one helped by God, is anchored firmly in Jesus, the one who helped, the one who saved, the one who redeems his people still today from their sins. Again, it's all there in the texts. It's in Moses and the prophets. It's in the Gospels and the New Testament. And now what? Several things follow. First, we thank God that he has put this all in the texts for our reading, for our learning, so that we do not miss the forest for the trees. God has more than gone the extra mile. Even in something like the blast that we heard from Amos, there is some good that can come, not from the condemnations per se, we're not trying to mix law and gospel here, but they crush, they terrorize, and they set up, they shock before it is too late. God could have said nothing. He warned, though, and there is still time to mine Moses and the prophets, and also the evangelists and the apostles for the grace that is to be found. And so Lazarus still serves this morning, still bears fruit from his faith as a witness to us, as a lesson of God's faithfulness that we come to know in our lives. The cross reminds us always. And then the fruit from us. Lazarus isn't coming back from the dead, but you're not dead. 
It is true that people have the word, but how shall they know and how shall they hear? Yes, there's scriptures and there are references and there are indications all around. You know, we could put Gideon Bibles in every drawer, but God goes beyond that. He doesn't simply say, maybe they'll open it, maybe they'll read it. He has people. He has us, too, bearing fruit, witnessing with our lives and with our words. And that's your cue. To give thanks that we understand and embrace all that's here on this side of this unbridgeable gulf, twixt heaven and hell, and to do something with the riches we have, that is, with the word. There's God's bias for the poor in spirit, for those in need of the grace. There's really little said about heaven and hell. We have this image of the great gulf that's talked about. But beyond that, it's pretty bare bones. But that's because that's not our focus. Ours is really on the five brothers, the living, those around us at every hand. It's why we're here, why we work, why we study, why we care about knowing what we know, and why we hold fast. Rejoice. Lazarus, God helps. Amen. <laughs>